0: Welcome and thank you for listening to Crossway Christian Church, where we are practicing the way of Jesus together. Follow us on our social media for more content and check out our website for all upcoming events and different ways to stay connected. And now, let's listen to the word together. Last week, we kicked off our new three-part series, and really a series that's going to be a theme that's woven into really our winter and springtime here at Crossway, and that is about humility, kind of rediscovering this lost or forgotten virtue. We looked at uh, 25 or so 100 years ago of how before the time of Jesus, humility was something that was despised. People didn't desire it whatsoever. But at the time of Jesus, something began to radically change. As historians from even secular universities have studied, how did humility go from being something that was so unwanted to something that was highly desired, prized as a virtue, a virtue that helps great leaders even become greater? And they, again, not a religious study, but show that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the story of the gospel, is what changed everything, radically changed this uh, honor-based, shame-based society to one that instead of despising humility, thought it was something to be utterly sought after. And we want to pick up where we left off last week because we saw that just as humility revolutionized the world Back in the ancient Greco-Roman era, perhaps humility can be what would revolutionize our world again if Christians rediscovered this elusive, almost forgotten virtue that is a hallmark of what true Christianity is at its core. Because we see in Jesus, the greatest man who ever lived took the lowest place, the place of the cross, and that has redefined what greatness looks like. But because of this elusive quality of humility, today I want to do three things. I want us to first really define what is humility. Secondly, I'd like for us to see why humility matters so much, especially in our world today. And then lastly, see how can we cultivate humility more and more into our lives that we might become humble like Jesus. And to do this, we're going to kind of follow a four kind of movement sequence. First, we're going to look at Jesus' example and teaching on humility. Then, secondly, we're going to fast forward about 400 years to uh, the time in the 400s with the ancient Christian desert dwellers, what they taught about the value of humility. Thirdly, we're going to fast forward about a thousand years after that to around the 1500s to learn about some of the best teaching uh, in this kind of church renewal period around humility. And then we'll come to our modern day and age to learn about what humility is, why it matters, and how we can cultivate it from more contemporary voices. And so, if you have your Bibles... And I'd like you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, first book in the New Testament, chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. And as you follow along, you might even just close your eyes, just really focus on hearing Jesus' words. Imagine that he is in your home right now, sharing this invitation to you, no matter how old or how young you are, no matter what you're wearing, imagine Jesus is inviting you to draw near to him. Let's hear God's very words. Come to me, all you that are weary in carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest. For your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let me just read this from a paraphrase of the Bible called the Message Translation. It's maybe my favorite text in all of the message. And just listen to this. Allow these words just to kind of be spoken over you. Jesus says Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? and lightly. Come to me. No matter where you are, what you're experiencing, that is Jesus' never-ending invitation to come to him as you are, where you are. His grace paves the way and opens up that opportunity for you. Maybe it's been a while since you've come to Jesus. Maybe this is the moment to draw nearer to him again. And he invites people in a context, although 2,000 years from when we are alive now, but not that different from us. He's speaking to people who feel weary, burdened, like they're just carrying a lot of weight on their shoulders. Resonates, doesn't it? And he says, learn from me. Learn to live your life the way I would do it if I was you. And what's this manner and disposition of Jesus in which we are going to be taught? Gentleness, humility. We'll define those words in a little bit more deeply, more closely. But what's the outcome of coming to Jesus who is gentle and humble? He helps us step into these unforced rhythms of grace so that we can learn to live freely and lightly. Kind of what happens when you just receive good news that you were worried about how something was going to turn out, what the outcome was, but you're given news better than you expected, and there's just like a weight that is lifted off of your shoulders. When we come to Jesus, he doesn't promise to solve all of our problems or make some of the pains just go away, but he does invite us to allow him in his good timing, in his gentle and humble manner, to help carry and ease some of the burdens in which we carry. There is a way to find. Rest in Jesus. It's by drawing ever nearer to Him. And how does Jesus describe Himself? These are some of the earliest self designations of how Jesus identifies who He is. He first says He is gentle. In Greek, this is the word pros, it means meek. Or if you go a little bit deeper into the word study, it reveals that gentleness is about enduring all things with an even temper. Enduring a pandemic with an even temper. It's free from a haughty, egotistic self-sufficiency. We realize how dependent we are on God, not just to be saved, but to live each and every day the way Jesus would want us to live. But he's gentle, free from huge swings, I think, in dramatic action of attitude. There is an evenness to his temper. That's good news, because nothing can rattle him, nothing can shake him. God is grounded steadfast, and he's inviting us to be like that, as we'll see here in just a moment. Not only is he gentle, but he is humble. "Typanos" is the Greek word for humility, and as we that's humbling to mispronounce humility, by the way. Humility, as we saw last week, about being brought low to the low place for the sake of other people. And when we see that this is who Jesus is, the earliest followers of him realize that this is what Jesus is like. This is what we need to be like as well. And so if we fast forward a little bit to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 2, Paul in the first three chapters of Ephesians has just given this detailed, robust theology of who God is, what he has done, and how we can be freed in him. And in light of all that God has done, in verse 1, Paul says, live a life worthy of this remarkable calling that you have received. And what is the first way that we can live a life worthy of the calling we have received based on what Christ has done for us? He begins by saying this worthy, congruent life begins by being completely gentle and humble. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Just as We find ourselves weary and burdened. The early Christians found themselves surrounded by weary and burdened people who they were to bear with just as we are to bear with those around us, just as Jesus has carried our burdens as well. And the posture we should take as we interface, relate with others before God is one of being completely gentle and humble. And somehow that posture just as we find Jesus inviting us to him is attractive, it's alluring. We are to be that same type of alluring presence as well as we model and reflect this way of Jesus. So humility to Jesus, it's about lowering ourselves for the sake of others. We cultivate this type of humility by being with God, encountering Christ's presence so that we might be able to show and live this way of Jesus, humility and gentleness to our families, and just imagine from our homes to our wider worlds, almost like in concentric circles going out. It starts with those closest to us and expands as we learn to love our neighbors like Christ has loved us. And this matters because as 1 John 2, 6 says, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, if anyone claims to live in him, they must walk as Jesus walked. Our world is desperate for the church to not only just believe what Jesus has taught us to believe, but to follow in his footsteps, to walk the way he would walk if he was us here and now. So the way of Jesus, that's movement one. Movement two, if we fast forward about 400 years, is around the time that Christianity was legalized. Now it's amazing, in the first couple hundred years of this Christian uh, way, Christians were badly persecuted by the Romans of the day. But somehow, this countercultural way in which they lived became so attractive, so alluring, that it grew and grew, it swelled and swelled to a point that the Romans could not control it any longer. And then Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity, and then issued the Edict of Milan, which enabled Christianity to now be legalized. And as Christianity was legalized, you would think that was a great victory for the church. And while it was good in so many ways, one of the unintended consequences was that it now allowed for people to claim Christian belief, but to have a lifestyle that was very antithetical to the way of Jesus Christianity became now something that was attractive for those who wanted to gain upward mobility politically or economically or socially. And somehow, Christianity started to become colluded. Its truth, its way, this type of the creative minority that Christianity was as it now became the majority, some of that, that rawness was lost as it kind of got watered down. And so there were men and women who saw what was happening, said, well, now we have to preserve this way of Jesus. We can't allow ourselves to be squeezed into the mold around us by the pressures of others. And so they withdrew to the desert, very similar to what Jesus does in Matthew 4. After he's baptized, he goes out to the wilderness. He's tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. Somehow that prepares him for the ministry that's to come. And so men and women took a similar posture and went out to some of these deserts in the Middle East. And they encountered Christ deeply and powerfully, and they had a remarkable amount of wisdom they learned about the power of humility, even though it's so elusive. Here's a little bit of what some of these men and women shared. Among the desert dwellers, humility, they thought, was the most powerful of all the virtues, but also quite elusive. One great teacher, a woman in that day and age, and we see women playing a prominent role in the early church in these years, decades, centuries after Jesus, was a woman here named Amma Sincletica. And she underscored humility's importance in saying this, one of the famous desert sayings, a ship cannot be built without nails, and no one can be saved without humility. It's integral for us to grow into Christ-likeness and to draw closer to God. At its core, these desert dwellers would kind of understood humility to mean purity of heart. And purity of heart is not that they just kept themselves away from certain things or images or music. They didn't just refrain from dancing or things like that. Purity of heart was really all about a single-minded focus that above everything else, you wanted Jesus. You wanted to be with him, to become like him, to live like him. That was the sole focus of your life, the overall driving force behind all of your motivations. And you had that sense of purity and, and that you were not Uh, divided in some way that wasn't Jesus and money or Jesus and fame or Jesus and pleasure. It was Jesus and Jesus alone. That was purity of heart. That was what humility was in their understanding. Robert Wicks, in his great book about the desert called Crossing the Desert, says the overarching goal of the sayings of the Desert Fathers, the kind of famous book in which a lot of these teachings are recorded, was for people to discover what the desert dwellers sought humility and the primary fruit from humility quies or translated rest rest now i think one of the core obstacles to really growing in your faith in jesus is restlessness Let's just imagine for a moment, boy, the trajectory of your faith when you kind of first became a Christian was like you were just growing leaps and bounds like this, feeling so close to God. But maybe over the years, somehow you kind of just got stuck in like this holding pattern. And if I was going to really dive more deeply into how you got stuck or how I've gotten hung up at different points in my life, it was because there was this overriding sense of restlessness that kind of kind of gnawed away at the growth that God wanted to help enact in birth within you. And that sense of restlessness can be like an internal angst, discontentment, dissatisfaction. But humility, the desert dwellers saw, was the remedy to the type of rest in which real love can grow up out of. Humility and surrendering ourselves to God, seeking Him above all else, helped to free us from the gnawing aches of restlessness that just permeate and taint not only our spiritual lives, but our lives in general. So to find the rest that we so long for, the peace we so long for, the desert dwellers would say, you've got to pursue humility. That's one of the reasons humility matters so deeply. Another reason in the desert why humility was such an important virtue to cultivate it was because it helped us be protected against some of the deep spiritual attack that they experienced, just like Jesus experienced when he was tempted by the, the enemy. And we today, even in our modern, highly scientific world, we still experience spiritual attack, even if we don't believe that exists. There's a powerful story about one of the desert fathers named Abba Macarius. And there is a profound sense of frustration that the devil himself expresses to Macarius because of his humility. It says this, I suffer a lot of violence from you, for I can't overcome you. For whatever you do, I do also. The devil goes on, there's only one quality in which you surpass me, your humility your humility. That is why I cannot prevail against you. A lot of us over these last couple of years, especially, and many of us in leadership within the church, would say there's never been a period where we have felt so much spiritual attack, not so much from the outside, but often from Christian insiders. And I believe that many times unconsciously we can be used by the enemy to to try and steal and destroy and discourage and tear down. But there is a remedy. There is a way we can build up our defenses against the enemy's attacks. And it's to cultivate humility. And there were two really primary practices, many within the desert, but two that stand out most for how to cultivate humility. Silence and solitude just hear those words for a moment silence and solitude could you imagine how integrating practices a regular rhythm of silence and solitude might help to calm your nerves and lower the amount of restlessness you experience in your soul Silence is about closing off our souls from sounds, whether noise or music or words, so that we may better still the inner chatter and clatter of our noisy hearts and be better and more attentive to God. Sometimes we think the internet or constant scrolling is going to help calm us down when we have all that inner chatter and maybe it gives us a quick fix, but it compiles and leads to greater and greater noise and chatter and clatter internally. I wonder just what five or 10 minutes a day of just stepping away, just being still, knowing that God is God, as Psalm 4610 commands, how much more rested, and humble we might become from that. But to really practice silence, we also need, it's kind of twin practice, solitude. Solitude's about creating open, empty spaces in our lives by purposefully abstaining from interactions with others so that freed from the competing loyalties that can well up because we're hearing the, other, uh, the, the opinions of others, the projections of others, but freed from those competing, competing loyalties we can then be better found by God. Even in the ancient world, they thought that one of the greatest remedies against loneliness, which so many of us are dealing with and battling and grappling with today, one of the greatest remedies to loneliness, counterintuitively, is solitude. Because in solitude, we remember that we are never alone. God is with us. God is with you. Come to me, Jesus says. So in sum, the humility for the early church was purity of heart, a single focus on pursuing God. And it matters because it frees us from restlessness. It protects us against spiritual attack and it can be cultivated through silence and solitude. That's movement two. Now let's fast forward to movement three around the 1500s to a man named St. Ignatius of Loyola. St. Ignatius is just a powerful and fascinating uh follower of Christ. He was Spanish and he grew up in a time where the good life was really seen to be a life of chivalry. Now chivalry, and it kind of sounds antiquated to us, but just like the American dream to others might, might feel really strange if we were going to fast forward hundreds of years into the future, like a, getting as big of, you know, houses and material possessions as you can and trying to rid your life of all ease just might... Seem normal to us, it might seem really bizarre to them. And I think this whole picture of chivalry seems very strange to us, but it was so normal for them. It was just the air that people breathed back then. And the real good life vision of chivalry was that you were going to try as a man to be a knight, to be a warrior in battle, and to perform heroic tasks on the battlefield so that you could win the affection of a damsel in distress. Fight well, get the women. It's not that different from a lot of our worldviews here today. And so Ignatius has this opportunity at this battle called Pamplona. French forces were coming in into the really poorly defended Spanish town. It was a lost battle, but Ignatius tried to do something heroic. He fought to the bitter end and ends up getting struck with a cannonball. It shatters his leg, injures another one, and now he's relegated to a period of convalescence where he just is in deep, deep pain and has no choice but just to sit and rest and try and heal in a very painful way. And while he's in convalescence, he's looking for something to occupy his attention. So he's asking, are there any romance novels I can read? And these are kind of like the, for mature audiences only, a type of mature kind uh, <laughs> of romance novels that he's looking for. That was kind of like some of the adult Netflix shows or things of the day. But there was none of that available to him. The only two books that he had access to during this lengthy period of convalescence was a book called The Life of Christ and a book called The Lives of the Saints. So with nothing else to occupy his attention while he's in deep, deep pain and recovery, he starts reading these books and something starts to occur. This almost fire starts to burn within him that he realizes this vision of chivalry is not going to satisfy the deepest longings of his heart but perhaps becoming a saint, being one who's so much more like Jesus that you would walk the way Jesus walked, that maybe that is what life is all about. And so Ignatius goes through these deep battles. Do I want to pursue this life of Christ or this life of chivalry? And he realizes that the life of chivalry can't even come close to delivering on what a life connected in an ever-deepening fashion to Christ could so he gives up the equivalent of the American dream of his day and age and pursues steadfastly, robustly, becoming like Christ. That involved a lot of humility for him. There's even a story where he's in his early 30s and he goes back to an elementary kind of school to learn Latin so that he can uh, go to, to theology school to, to really be trained to be a priest, to be a leader in the church. I can't imagine stepping into elementary school at this stage of my life, but that's something that Ignatius did out of his love and devotion for Christ. And out of his love and devotion for Christ, he helped develop what was called the spiritual exercises, one of the greatest curriculums for Christ-likeness that has ever been developed. And a lot of this is developed while he's thinking and reflecting on the life of Christ in that period of convalescence, and what we might call his shattering experience. And I'd just like to think for, talk with you a little bit about maybe reflecting on a shattering experience you had in your life. Often when these really troubling occurrences occur in our lives, we, we look back and often, why did God allow this? We try and make sense for how this could happen. And oftentimes that's going to be trying to chase information we might not ever receive in this lifetime. And that's okay. might not be satisfying, but it's Okay. And it can be okay when instead of just looking back at why it happened, we pay more attention to, God, what are you inviting me to do in and through this shattering experience? Where do I go next? And just as Ignatius used that shattering experience to turn to Christ, I wonder with whatever shattering experience you have gone through, maybe feeling right now, maybe it's just this whole period of the pandemic that has been shattering in a very collective sense, perhaps this is the time where God's inviting us and inviting you should draw nearer to him with an undivided devotion that maybe you've known you should have all along, but other competing loyalties has gotten in the way. We might not be able to understand why all those things happened, but there is a way forward, and God wants to walk on that path with you. So here's Jesus' invitation again. Come to me. Come to me. And as Ignatius came to Jesus, developed these spiritual exercises, he has a great teaching about the three kinds of humility. I think this is so profound, so powerful. He says the first kind of humility which is necessary for salvation, he says, is a desire to be with Jesus to the extent of having no serious rupture with him. This is often kind of that first act of repentance uh, where we turn from our sinful ways. We acknowledge how we've fallen short of the glory of God and how we are so in desperate need for God. And there are sometimes some big obstacles, like, though, in our way to keep us from God lust or sins of all different kinds, anger, whatever that might be, greed, envy. And we try and purge our lives from those big things so there's nothing that stands in the way of our relationship with God. So, if I'm here, if you're here, and maybe God's over here, what might be getting in the way of your walk with God? What obstacle might need to be removed? so that there is an unobstructed pathway between you and God. What might you need to repent of here today to change the way you're thinking and acting in light of this glorious opportunity that we have to draw closer and nearer to God? That's the first kind of humility. The second kind of humility kind of takes that into the next level. It's a desire to be with Jesus so closely that we strive to eliminate even minor differences between us. So sometimes when we come to faith in Christ or we're drawn to Christ, we know what those big things are that need to go. But then kind of like peeling back the layers of an onion throughout our lives, we realize there are some false attachments, inordinate or wrongful loves that we have, like maybe for attention or, uh, you know, for a lot of us as pastors, we want to serve Christ wholeheartedly and, and devotedly, but sometimes we also want to be famous or we want to get recognition or be well-loved. And so, especially during this time of the pandemic, when you can't is nearly everyone or hardly anyone, it's a good opportunity for us to realize, I need to die to people-pleasing, dying to caring about the, the opinions of others so that I can wholeheartedly, single-mindedly focus on Christ. What might be another layer that you need to peel back to create a clear pathway so that you can pursue God and draw near to Him? And then the third kind of humility Ignatius says, is the desire to be so closely identified with Jesus that we experience the suffering and rejection that he experienced. Now, this is a pretty tough pill to swallow here. Ignatius took this very literally. He chose poverty. He often kind of hurt his body by not Feeding it enough, not caring for it enough. And at the end of his life, I think he regretted in some ways, realizing he was too harsh with his spiritual practices. But for a lot of us in our culture, we pursue pleasure and avoid pain. Oftentimes we just, anytime anything bad is going on, we run from it rather than kind of entering into it and finding solidarity with Christ within it. And I think that's what this third type of humility is all about. Rather than trying to avoid pain and run from it, we try and meet Jesus and our disappointments, and our hurts, and the ways that we are even feeling defeated or upset by even fellow Christians—we draw near to Christ in that. About four years ago, I was privileged to co-author a book with a mentor of mine, Paul Borthwick, called *The Fellowship of the Suffering*: How Hardship Shapes Us for Ministry and Mission. And we based it on Philippians 3:10 and 11, which I think, unbeknownst to me at the time is a lot about how we grow in this third area of humility. Philippians 3 says, I want to know Christ, Paul proclaims, and the power of his resurrection. And a lot of times we end that verse right there. You can go to like Hobby Lobby or do a Christian bookstore and you can see that I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. But it kind of leaves off the second half of the verse because it doesn't sell very well, which says, and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, If somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And not just that, but I want to know him through the sharing of suffering. Being like him. Not running from our pain, but talking to God about it as well. And somehow, I think in that second half of kind of our spiritual journey, we don't just grow closer to God through triumph, but... It's often those shattering experiences as we suffer with God that we develop a greater intimacy and closeness with Jesus than we ever could have imagined. It doesn't come by means that we would choose, but it comes when we faithfully suffer with Christ. How might God, through these steps of humility, be inviting you to embrace this humble vision of desiring God above all else. That's what Ignatius would say humility is. It matters because it shapes us to become the kind of people God can use the most to help his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And now let's fast forward another four or five hundred years to the kind of latter part of the 20th century. I want to share just definitions of humility from two of my favorites. I named my sons after these two guys. The first was C.S. Lewis, Clive Staples Lewis. And it is just incredible book, Mere Christianity. If you've never read that, I would encourage you to read that here in 2022. But in Mere Christianity, he has one of my absolute favorite definitions to clarify what this elusive quality of humility is. He says this, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. In other words, humility is not you're actually pretty smart. But you say, oh, I'm not really that smart, or I'm really not that talented, even though you are. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's about thinking of yourself a whole lot less so that you can be focused on God and what God would have you do to love and bless others in this world. Now, we live in a cultural moment that just reverberates a message that it's all about you. Probably the way that is fashioned most in our day and age is that little phrase, you do you, you do you, man, you do you. And that seems like a loving thing to do. Let's just all give ourselves permission to be as self-absorbed and self-centered as we would like. But self-centeredness and self-absorption is at the crux of what sin really is. It's what distances us. It's what disconnects us from God more than anything else. It's what puts the barriers up. And so we are instead to think less of ourselves so we can think about more of God. Think of ourselves less so we can think of God more and how we might bless others more. That that whole definition starts to, uh, of humility and understanding, gets to the next person I just want to share with uh, who I named my first son uh, after. And from this British thinker, C.S. Lewis, we hop across the pond uh, here to America. One of my doctoral uh, professors, Gary Moon, calls America's answer to C.S. Lewis. He refers to America's answer for C.S. Lewis as Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard. Over the last two and a half years, I've been doing a lot of deep work on even this virtue of humility in my doctoral program. And here's something I wrote, kind of quoting Willard's book, Life Without Lack, which is a phenomenal book. And here's what uh, I kind of share in relation to Willard. Humility, Willard says, is the beautiful condition of people who have learned to surrender their desires, their glory, and their power. For this reason, Willard likens humility as the fruit that comes from having died to ourselves. Notice that Willard does not say humility is death of self, but death to self. This distinction is vital to maintain because death is, to self is not ultimately a negation, but a rising up to the very life of God. Humility, in other words, is not getting rid of yourself because you were put here to be a self as you make the grace-fueled movement from the old self to the new. Humility, therefore, begins in death to self. If you'd like to get some of these uh, notes, please feel free to email me, Dave Ripper at CrosswayCC.org. Just some great quotations. I would encourage you to spend a lot of time reflecting on. But let's just walk through this little paragraph that we read together, kind of line by line, just for the last couple of moments here together. Humility, Willard says, is the beautiful condition of those who have surrendered their lives, their desires to God. The fruit of humility is really living and learning to live a beautiful. Life, living beautifully, living in the truth, living in the goodness, living in a reflective way of the very beauty of God. Humility, and I think this is such an important thing to write down. Humility is death to self, not death of self. We don't die to our personality makeup, but we die to us being the center of our own universe. The way Willard would describe it is, let's say because of sin, Let's say we're like a computer, and within us, we have an egoic operating system within us. It's created for us to allow life to revolve around stroking our egos to be self-obsessed. But when we die to self, we trade this egoic operating system in for a kingdom operating system. Where God is king, and we want to do his will, not our own, above all else. That's what death to self is. And it's not a negation, because ultimately when we trade an egoic operating system in for a kingdom-minded operating system, we can rise up to share in the life of God that we were meant to live in. Here, Willard quotes 2 Peter 1.4, refers to it. Let me just look at it, because I think it's so important to understand what can really be gained as we cultivate humility in our lives. Peter writes, through these things, that's the death, resurrection and uh, of, of Jesus, God has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Let's focus in on that phrase that you might participate in the divine nature. Now, this sounds a little kind of new agey, uh, and I have a little bit of resistance as I first hear this participating in the divine nature language. But this does not mean changing human nature into a divine one. Rather, it means qualifying the human nature that we share and have so that it is qualified for a life, of life with God who is a God of love. And so humility, as we said last week, if, we want, if love is the goal, and love should be the goal, because the more loving we become, the closer we will be to Jesus. Maybe if Jesus and, and the Trinity feels far away from you, it might be because you're too self-obsessed. But love, as it grows, if love is the goal, then humility is the gateway to get there. And as we cultivate this humil- hum- humility, we are able to share more and more in the very life of love that permeates the very life of God himself. And the result of that is our lives are going to overflow and abound with an unceasing, undying joy. And I speak here each week because I, more than anything else, want you to get to experience and share in that joy. So to summarize this last movement, humility, according to Lewis, is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Willard says that it's a beautiful condition that's cultivated as we surrender our desires to God's. It's praying Jesus' prayer before he goes to the cross, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. And this matters because the quality of relationship that we will experience with God in many ways is contingent on how much Love, we, how much love we are pervaded by, and that type of love that we would be transformed into the likeness of Christ through, comes from humility. And the result of this, Willard would say, is that this beautiful life results in us looking like children of light. And there he's quoting Ephesians 5:8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. This past Monday, after I flew back from Atlanta, it was cold. Everyone in my family needed to get out of the house, and so we took a little drive to watch the sunset in Groton at a place called the General Field. You can see Mount Wachusett in the background. I got out of the car, and just seeing the golden rays of that golden hour was so striking, so beautiful. And as I was watching this, my son Dallas saw, it, and he came out of the car. And as he came out of the car, he starts watching this as well. It just starts to bring joy to him. And then my younger son, Clive, he starts seeing this unfold before him as well. And you see these boys, even though it's like 10 degrees outside, just playing with reckless abandon. And this idea of children of light came into my head, and then it just reminded me of the words we read last week from Jesus when his disciples asked, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a child. He put them among them, and he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And just as I saw my kids playing, it reminded me of this humility this joy, and ultimately in the humility of being a child, there is freedom. I hope to show that to you in that video. There is freedom. There is freedom. Jesus says, Come to me. I am gentle and I am humble. And you'll find rest for your souls. You'll learn to live freely and lightly. Humility is ultimately freedom because humility is freedom from self. Obsession and an unself-absorbed life is a life that is alluring, a life that is attractive, a life that is countercultural to the patterns of the world that the world tries to squeeze us into. And finally, church historians note that during those early years of Christianity, why it grew so wildly, how it grew so pervasively, the strategy of evangelism that led to this growth was simply this. People chose to learn the way of Jesus. And as they learned this way of Jesus, they came closer to him. They became humble and gentle like him. It was a radical departure from the honor-shame-based society of that day. And people who were hurting, people who were looking for a better way, they found it in Christians. And they simply asked, can I join? Can I be a part of this with you? And it grew and it grew and it grew. And I believe we need a revolution of humility just like this in our world today because there are so many that are weary, so many that are lost, so many that are hurting, and they are looking for a better way. And because sometimes of our Christian arrogance and ego, they haven't found it in the church. But what if today, this was a day we made that decision that we are going to follow the humble way of Jesus so that everyone everywhere might experience the beauty found in humility. The truth of Jesus found through this. The goodness of Jesus found through this. The beautiful way of Jesus. And so may we respond to Jesus' invitation. Come to me. I am gentle. I am humble in heart. And you will find rest. And you will find freedom. And I hope and pray today, my brothers and sisters, may not only you find that rest, that freedom, that joy, but may those in your life see it in you and desire it in you. And may you help them Be invited to practice the way of Jesus together with us. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for these words. And as we prepare to come to the table to remember your sacrifice on the cross for us, may we have a moment now just to search our hearts. If humility is about removing the obstacles that get in the way of our relationship with you, Show us right now, God, what those obstacles might be. Self-sufficiency. Maybe it's our own American dreams. Maybe it's our hurts that cause us to be stuck in the past. Lord, help us to repent of these things. And Lord, I pray for all of us that when we think of what Jesus has done, the greatest man taking the lowest place. May we see how greatness has been revolutionized. And may we capture that vision of greatness by your grace. And may we live as your servants, carrying on this beautiful way of humility so that everyone everywhere might come to you.